This is Macro Horizons, episode 71. Math in this job? Presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of June 1st. As Macro Horizons celebrates its 100th episode, 71st for the weekly Ian show, we'd like to sincerely thank everyone for tuning in. For those listeners who have been with us since the beginning, we're very, very sorry. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. And here's a quick look back at the last 100 episodes of Macro Horizons. Hello, this is Margaret Karens. We're here to tell you about our new podcast, Macro Horizons. This is Macro Horizons. This is Macro Horizons. This is Macro Horizons. High quality spreads, episode one. Monthly episode one. Episode one. So I guess this is the part where I'm supposed to try to make a joke? A joke, yeah. Funny, like, haha. Like a clown. Oh, God. Hey, Dan. Yeah, Dan. Isn't it confusing that we're both named Dan? It sure is, Dan. We've also achieved advancements in technology that allow some forms of production to continue even if it is from the comfort of one's own home. For example, podcast production. See what I did there? Number nine. Well, no, you say it because you just got done talking. Well, I'm going to say number nine, but I need to know what number nine is. Funding market volatility and Fed balance. So so you're not saying number nine. I'm going to say number nine. I want to say number nine. I know you do. That's what I'm going to say, just to take away from you. You know what? We really should have recorded that whole back. (laughs) Number nine. (laughs) All right, let's press stop record. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We couldn't do it without you. Now, back to our regularly scheduled programming. The week just passed was an interesting one in the Treasury market, insofar as what we saw was a continuation of the bottoming of economic data. Now, that came in the form of some of April's releases, with an emphasis on durable goods as well as personal spending. There was a surprise in the personal income print, which came in much higher than anticipated. And as the report cited, a lot of that has to do with the expansion of government programs, which were designed to supplement income for workers who were laid off because of the pandemic. Now, this creates an interesting dynamic because it suggests that once the lockdowns are eased, that consumers will have more money to spend. Whether or not that translates through to a more significant bounce in real GDP will be an issue for the third quarter. For the time being, we continue to see the Treasury market holding that stubborn range of 54 to 78 basis points. There remains upward pressure on the shape of the yield curve, steepening being a primary theme that we expect to play out over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. Now, we're still in the initial stage of the steepening, which has been driven by the front end of the market being anchored to monetary policy expectations with only incremental pressure further out the curve coming from supply. A quick look at 10-year break-even suggests that there's very little inflation anticipated, and this was confirmed with the core PCE figures on Friday. Going forward, however, once the economy reopens, the labor force is re-engaged and we get a better sense of what the new normal will become, we would expect incremental wage gains to eventually translate through to upward pressure on inflation. This series of auctions that have just passed, the final ones for the month of May, all came with a reasonable concession. Twos tailed two-tenths of a basis points, fives tailed 1.2 basis points, and sevens tailed eight-tenths of a basis point. 
very rare to see a trio of auctions tail. However, given the amount of supply that the market has been tasked with underwriting and the realities of a lower for longer rate environment, we're not particularly surprised to see a bit of reluctance to take down the supply. Nonetheless, that isn't to suggest that we anticipate that going forward, the Treasury Department will struggle to underwrite the ballooning auction sizes, but this is some indication that supply does matter on the margin. It won't redefine the outright level for Treasury yields. For that, we'll look to the macro environment, but it will create at least intraday and intraweek concessions. We remain impressed with the performance of risk assets, despite some of the Softness later in the week, the S&P 500 did manage to break through the 200-day moving average, which comes in at roughly 3,000. We'll be eager to see how long equities are able to maintain the bid, particularly as the tensions between the U.S. and China continue to escalate as the administration focuses on the issues in Hong Kong. So, can I say it? Number nine? No, that's still my line. Number nine being your line is fine. And hey, it even rhymes. Ugh. 100 episodes and we still got it. 100 episodes and we've got it as much as we've ever had it. So anyway, it was a pretty interesting week in the treasury market. I feel like I say that a lot these days. And frankly, it has been interesting, even though the price action hasn't done a great deal. Treasury yields anchored in that 54 to 78 basis point range for tins is not an exciting environment. What we have seen is a grind higher in risk assets with the S&P 500 level safely above the 3,000 milestone, at least for the time being. The incoming economic data is consistent with the notion that April will mark the lows, at least for the second quarter, and the balance of the year will be spent reopening, rebuilding, and hopefully repricing. So Ian, one thing in conversations with clients this week that was very top of mind was yield curve control. Now, it seems to me that opinions on the probability and timing of this are pretty spread out. Some people think it's a chance it's announced as early as the June FOMC. Some people think it'll never happen. Others think it's a 2021 problem. How are you thinking about yield curve control? What's the probability of it occurring? And how do you think the market might reprice were this to be announced in the next few months? So I don't think it's on the table for June. I do think it's in the Fed's toolbox. And I think that the Fed is going to hold on to that until there's a point in which they need to signal further commitment to accommodative monetary policy for the foreseeable future. Forward guidance in the near term makes a lot more sense. The market is expecting that. Now, I'm certainly sympathetic to the idea that the market wants more. And if, in fact, the consensus drifts toward anticipating yield curve control at the June meeting, I think that Powell is going to have a problem. In practical terms, the Fed knows that it's not going to be a perfect V recovery. They've done a very good job of laying the groundwork for a steady grind back out of the depths of the recession. And so that translates through to weaker growth in the fourth quarter and beyond. What are they going to do? They can't cut rates any further. Yield curve control is a 
different form of forward guidance, but it does show that monetary policy officials are doing something. So it's primarily the signaling impact that it carries with it. And as you point out, the level at which yield curve control is actually implemented isn't going to be remarkably different from where yields are at the moment. So let's say for the two-year sector with a backdrop of a Fed funds range between zero and 25 basis points, they decide that 20 basis points is as high as they want twos to get. Well, they're at 17 basis points right now. The only thing that a move like that would do would be to push yields lower further out the curve. Three and five-year rates might see some downward pressure, but a lot of that's already priced in. And we can see that given the current landscape for U.S. rates. What I think will be fascinating is to see the direction that the Fed takes forward guidance. There's two schools of thoughts and a blended one being that it will be date-specific, the other being that it will be level-specific or thresholds, targets, something comparable to what we saw at the end of the last financial crisis. What about a combination? You have a date to reevaluate at a certain point with levels needing to be achieved in terms of core inflation and, I would think, more immediately, the unemployment rate. So with that debate somewhat more timely... What are you thinking on the topic, John? I guess when I think of yield curve control, I agree with you. It really is just an enhanced forward guidance. And in some ways, it's redundant. The market's already priced lower for longer. As you pointed out, two-year yields are at 17 basis points. That hardly calls for a huge sledgehammer needed to come in and push rates lower. Instead, what it seems to me is it's just the Fed saying they're willing to put money where their mouth is. If they're going to be at zero for an extended period of time, they can credibly signal that by buying in the front end of the curve. Okay, fair enough. The first trade of that seems like it's kind of a curve steepener. You mentioned that three, five-year sector outperforming. And as the market has gotten more and more comfortable with the notion that yield curve control is coming, we've seen 530s steepen. It's at multi-month highs. Fair enough. What I think will be interesting is the second trade here, because if the Fed does yield curve control in the front end of the curve, I would also expect them to continue a traditional quantitative easing program, potentially backloaded. So say they do five-year and in yield curve control, well, they could do five-year and out QE. So the second trade of this, having a back-end focused QE program, could eventually turn over into a curve flattener, not necessarily in the same type of yield repression as a true yield curve control, but a disproportionate buy-in of 10s, 20s, and 30s should flatten the curve and ease financial conditions. So Watching the timing of this play out, and particularly the shape of that 5s, 30s curve, I think is going to be super interesting to watch over the next few weeks and months as the Fed really tries to figure out how do they signal their playbook for getting out of this mess. That's an interesting point that you make about 5s, 30s, and I don't know if I completely agree that yield curve control is intuitively a flattener for 5s, 30s. Now, it would be in the event that all of the QE that they have been spreading across the entire curve is then all of a sudden focused on the 10, 20, and 30-year sector. I get that. That makes sense. But envision a situation where they implement yield curve control and they know that they're going to have to put some money to work to defend those levels. Why would they then be compelled to simply shift the buying further out the curve? I would expect that given the Fed's objective of providing as little market disruption as possible, they would simply keep the 
existing amount of QE further out the curve stable, at least as an initial foray into yield curve control if and when it happens. Taking a step back, the re-steepening trade is also predicated on the idea that at one point, we will eventually start to see reflationary pressures come back into the system. It was fascinating to see the breakdown of some of the recent wage data, most notably personal income during the month of April. What we saw was that the enhanced unemployment benefits, along with some of the compositional issues, led personal income to bounce rather than the significant decline that the market was expecting. The question now becomes, what do consumers do with that extra money? They haven't been able to get out and spend it because stores have been closed. There's only so much that you can order online. And so when the lockdowns end and the new normal is achieved, do we actually see a spike in consumption that offsets a lot of the concerns about a L or U or SU-shaped recovery. That's going to be one of the biggest unknowns for this summer. And to me, that unknown really comes down to the question of confidence. We've heard it from a variety of FOMC members, but the question will soon become, how quickly does maybe hiring start to pick back up, case counts dropping, economies reopening? How quickly do those realities translate into a more optimistic consumer? You can have substantially higher wages, but if you're still too concerned to venture out of your house, exactly as you say, Ian, that money is not going to work driving inflation. Now, it's difficult to point to any specific metrics that will give us higher frequency reads on the mindset of the individual, but as the covered period in some series such as jobless claims move into late May and even starting to get to early June, the degree to which those metrics are less horrible than feared could offer early insight on the speed, direction, and ultimate magnitude of the inflection out of this recession. Then you bring up a good point about some of the early signs that the economic data might be less bad than feared. Now, we did have that personal income report that I mentioned earlier, but we also saw a drop in the official continuing claim series. I initially read that as a good sign, but upon further investigation, what we have found is that some of the extended benefits because of the pandemic actually don't roll through to the continuing series. So while the pace of initial jobless claims is slowing, there's still a lot of people receiving unemployment benefits as we move into the summer. And Ian, that point on the benefits I think is worth really highlighting. The only way that households are in this good of shape is basically a bailout from the federal government in terms of augmented unemployment checks, in terms of that $1,200 one-off check. Either way, when I look at the next several months, it's obvious that we're going to need to see huge deficits as the federal government issues to try to keep the economic engine going. And this is actually where it ties back to yield curve control a little bit. So, If the Fed has said, we're going to cap interest rates, call it five years and in at X basis points, what is stopping the U.S. Treasury from aggressively ramping up issues at those tenors and in? They know that it's not going to dramatically shake the market because the Fed is a huge backstop of demand. Does this kind of reshape the supply relationship whereby Treasury historically has wanted to be regular and predictable, but the reason for that is out of fear of shaking the Treasury market? If the Fed has put a big backstop on any price action, does that allow the U.S. Treasury to be a lot more aggressive in auction sizes, not necessarily leading to big price action, 
but leading to even larger record large auction sizes. That's a great point, John. And I think that another aspect of it is that Mnuchin has come out and said that terming out the debt will be more advantageous for taxpayers over time. And intuitively, that makes sense given how low rates are at this moment. The counterpoint to why the Treasury Department might not want to ramp up issuance in twos and threes, for example, is because at one point, if all goes according to plan, the Fed will step back from yield curve control. And if the Treasury Department has locked in borrowing for 10, 20, 30 years, that will create a longer-term benefit for taxpayers than if the Treasury Department is forced to refinance effectively a big balloon payment in two or three years when the economy is back on track, rates are higher, and inflation is back in the system. It's a difficult position at this point for Mnuchin for a number of reasons. Either way, I'm increasingly sympathetic to the notion that, purposefully or not, the coordination between the Fed and Treasury is kind of equivalent to backdoor MMT. Do you think that type of coordination is sustainable, or is this just kind of a crisis environment, let's get it done mentality, and we might not expect to see close workings in future quarters? Well, as we saw during the last financial crisis, it's very much the let's get it done mentality. The Fed is monetizing the deficit. There's no question about that. It's occurring in a way that appears to be, at least optically, arm's length. And when it's not, there is a veneer of monetary policy to back that up. The MMT, non-MMT argument is a useful one, I think, in Washington more than anywhere else. But in practical terms, as long as the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency, the Treasury market will continue to trade off of global macro expectations for inflation and growth growing forward in the longer end of the curve and monetary policy expectations in the front end of the curve. And that's to the Treasury Department's benefit, at least for the time being. I wouldn't be surprised to see over the course of the coming quarters increasing partisanship in Washington that does trigger conversations around the absolute level of the deficit and what the Fed is doing in support of financing that spending. And our conversation so far has been focused on really what was this week's main theme. That is, what is the Fed going to do next? And it's this dynamic that brings me to what was an impressive week in equity markets. Ian, as you touched on briefly earlier, the S&P 500 is now firmly back above 3,000, firmly above the 200-day moving average. And where this comes in from a broader perspective is how equities tie back into financial conditions, and that is through the VIX. Now, if one wanted to make the argument that yield curve control may be implemented as soon as the June meeting, we don't think so, far too soon, but that would be a function of a market that is pricing it in so aggressively that the risk Powell would run by not delivering on that at the June meeting would cause a dramatic tightening of financial conditions, and we'd be right back into something akin to a crisis mode. Now, the VIX is extremely suppressed. Five-year yields remain north of the upper bound of the target range. So while the dialogue around YCC has picked up, market pricing of that eventuality has not, which suggests that the Fed does have time to roll this out. Clearly, it's still being studied. And following the June 10th meeting, I definitely wouldn't be surprised to see more Fed speakers, aside from just Williams, come out and suggest that this is something the committee is very seriously considering. So this discussion really brings us back to the only question that matters at this point. You down with YCC? Yeah, you know me. 
That was fitting for the 100th episode. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will have the May non-farm payrolls report to provide additional guidance as economic expectations are refined for the balance of the second quarter. The consensus now is for another significant drop with an 8 million reduction in payrolls anticipated. This should bring the unemployment rate up to 19.5% and is consistent with the series of jobless claims figures that we have seen. There have been a few reports which suggest that there might be reason for optimism, particularly on the sentiment side, as it appears April will mark the bottoms and May's sentiment is beginning to improve, albeit still at very, very low levels. In that context, we'll see the ISM series, both manufacturing and non-manufacturing, for the month of May this week, which will further help inform investors' expectations for the current quarter, and more importantly, the rebound that is anticipated in the second half of the year. The reopening of the U.S. economy remains the primary driver of risk assets and the biggest unknown as we consider the market going forward. One of the biggest takeaways from the Fed's recent Beige Book was the inclusion of the word uncertain 21 times. Now we know that there's a great deal of unknowns as the economy attempts to reopen, so that wasn't particularly surprising. If nothing else, it simply offered us confirmation of the uncertainties facing global markets at this point. We've been on about the range trade for a very long time, so I won't bore you with the details. Nonetheless, we do not anticipate a material challenge to the range until the latter half of June, and that it would presumably be accompanied by an extension of the green shoots and animal spirits argument as investors observe the relative success, or lack thereof, of the reopening of the U.S. economy. While typically the months of June, July, and August are characterized by low volume trading in the treasury market, limited conviction as the summer trading conditions take hold, we are not anticipating that to be the case in 2020. In fact, much of the repricing that occurred during March and April will be put to the test as the summer comes into focus. This will be less an issue of weather and more an issue of the progression of the economic data once the third quarter becomes a reality. Even with that backdrop, there's still an open question about COVID-19's ability to survive warmer conditions. So there's little doubt that that will take center stage in the coming months, and investors will once again be watching the coronavirus stats. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. As we wrap up this milestone recording, we'd like to leave you with this final thought. 100 episodes is just a nice way of counting the 162,000 seconds that none of us are ever getting back. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, We'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode, so please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. 
This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.